Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We're going to go against the grain for the next couple of hours, and uh, we have we have a lot to talk about today. Yeah. I'm not going to say some days we've had more, yeah, but there is still there's some bees in our bonnet that we are going to work out. Yes, today. that's a good way to put it. Yes, we are we are going to talk about European gas supplies, and of course, this endless drama of Europe trying to figure out how it can separate from Russian gas yeah. and uh, Russia. Good luck with Russia, that. Russia, you know. <laughs> But not standing in the way of that process, no. <laughs> sometimes helping helping them along. Uh, I, we might get into the the ongoing um, drama over uh, Nord Stream, the OG Nord Stream, and the the great turbine that is is or is not the cause of uh, some of these throttled gas supplies, or if it's just you know Europe not wanting to pay for the gas that it uses. You know, this is going to be to me. This is going to be fascinating because I understand how the the Europeans, the Western Europeans want to act on principle. Mm-hmm. At the same time, they really, really need this Russian gas. Yeah. And so what do they do? Do they do what the Poles and the Hungarians and the Bulgarians do and cut off all Russian gas, but then on the QT, buy it on the black market right. or on the gray market yeah. and say, we're not buying Russian gas. I mean, again, how it, where where is the principle if that's what you're doing? You know exactly. what I mean? Like, I, under, I understand wanting to act on principle. Sure. I don't see a lot of it. I and, agree. you know, if you're also, if it's like, well, we're going to cut our, we're going to, we're going to stop using Russian gas and instead our good or great friend Azerbaijan, exactly. a much better country. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about Turkey's uh, drone industry, expanding drone industry, and really whether the U.S. has a leg to stand on and yeah. sort of complaining about uh, weapons sales and destabilization and right. the like. Uh, we are going to talk more about monkeypox because there's more of it. You know, there was a uh, one of the networks this morning had a map of the world with a uh, showing us where monkeypox is. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much everywhere. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, it, it's not in North Korea. It's not in Kyrgyzstan or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty much already everywhere else in the world. you talk dismissively about Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> it's a beautiful country. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about that. We're going to get into a little bit of this. You know, there's, there's some people saying uh, monkeypox is like smallpox light. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to be ready. We're mm-hmm. supposed to be ready mm-hmm. for the reactivation of smallpox and its use as a weapon. Why aren't we? We've yes. got all these smallpox vaccines. Why aren't they being used? Why are we, you know, why are we seeing vaccine shortages when we have a vaccine that will work? So we're going to ask these questions because there might very well be good answers to them. Uh, I'm not going to provide them, but one of our guests definitely can. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are going to talk about what we might have a rare bit of good news uh, about the relationship between the U.S. and the Taliban government in Afghanistan, and we might have some progress toward yes. Afghanistan seeing its uh, frozen foreign reserves thawed and uh, and given back to it. We might, you know, it might be a case of, of window dressing and bluster, but it Maybe. either could be actual movements on the horizon. So yeah, we're going to talk about those. This could be one of those rare um, do the right thing moments. Mm-hmm. Maybe. We'll yeah, see we'll what see. happens. We'll see. We'll see. I'm going to be asking our guest in the second hour how much hope we should have. Also, <laughs> Washington Post uh, predicting big victories for the yeah. Biden administration in the coming days. So we're going to get into uh, whether those victories are actually going to come. Senate parliamentarian still has to weigh in on some of these processes and just how big they are and ask, you know, uh, why the Washington Post feels so uh, hyped up 
right now about this administration. It's funny, too, because it's the same Washington Post that has been dumping all over the Biden administration's inability to get legislation passed. Mm -hmm. I mean, just as recently as a few days ago, they were talking about how Joe Manchin was the demise of the modern Democratic Party and that the Biden administration just couldn't get anything through. Now's their moment. Mm -hmm. Although apparently one of the things that, you know, makes this this legislative victory, the string of legislative victories, uh, slightly uncertain is now Joe Manchin has COVID. Right. So, like, can all the Democrats they need be there for the votes? I feel well, like surely. But just as we were walking into the studio, uh-huh. Lisa Murkowski said that she has COVID, too. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. A bunch of. Uh, yeah. Oh, so, OK. So one we're and balancing one. each other. Out. It's 49 yeah. to 49 now. Wow. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. <laughs> Sitting in a tree, those two. <laughs> uh, yeah. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, what's going on inside the GOP. Uh, maybe take a look at Trump's first appearance in D.C. Uh, since January 6th, right? Yes. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, first time. Yep. And then, you know, some bits and bobs to get through uh, mentioned in this in this monologue. I had a yes. chuckle at. Um, so they're still working on Congress is still working on legislation uh, with regard to cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. And so Politico today had a story about how the House Financial Services Committee uh, is, is going to have to delay the markup of a, a stable coin bill because the Treasury Secretary wanted changes in a provision of the legislation that would it that would protect consumers is the idea. Uh, she wanted to uh, let me see if I can find this here. She, she wanted something in there that would require banks to segregate uh, consumer assets from uh, investment assets or like individual assets from investment assets, basically trying trying to include some more protections, uh, I think, for for regular people in this extremely volatile market. But it's just like it is a bizarre situation to watch these these legislators try to regulate something mm-hmm. that seems so volatile. You can't even get your handle on it, in particular, stable coins, because stable stable coins, I guess, are they They are used to buy other cryptocurrencies, usually. And the idea is that they are, it's in the name, stable. Mm. And they are pegged to some, usually to the dollar, right? But theoretically, they could right. be pegged to some other, you know, stable and valuable actual mm-hmm. asset. Um, but, you know, famously, the, the most significant, the most important and well-known of these stable coins collapsed, like, in June. Yeah, you sure know, did. And now, of course, if you look at a Coindesk write-up of it, it, it will say that Tether, this is the... Um, it was like Tether, Luna, and Terra were this these sort of interconnected ecosystem of ter- uh, stable coins and like whatever the mm-hmm. other things flying around them. Um, that th- proponents of cryptocurrency and stable coins will say that they have survived a stress test because they dropped as low as n- trading ninety two to the dollar, ninety two cents to the dollar, and now they have re- recovered their peg. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well. That's actually not. That just sounds like any other app. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, so why? How is that stable? Is that it's not. It's not stable, and it's not yes. pegged to a dollar. Yes. Yeah. It is. Uh, so I mean, it, it it is interesting to watch. They are still trying to figure out how they can possibly create, uh, you know, legislation on these extremely volatile assets, commodities, whatever, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Um. But. You know, it just seems like the the the, the horses fled. 
you know, shutting shutting the barn door on this afterward. Yeah, after, it's hard to, after the animals get out. I mean, I guess there are people who would say, no, this crypto market is going to continue, is going to, con- you know, uh, it'll come back, it'll be stable. I don't know. I don't know. You and know, it also I, seems like, to the extent that they're still working on legislation that existed before this crash, yeah. it also, I mean, to me, carries a strong whiff of still, like, su- supporting the biggest players you know, su- supporting uh, the people right. who are already making money on this and are going to continue making money on this, not actually protecting consumers yes. and the, the retail investors. And you made a point uh, the other day, last week, I guess it was, that um, that this crash took place just as the big players on Wall Street were getting involved, mm-hmm. just as they were recommending that people uh, invest in Bitcoin in their IRAs yeah. or in their in their private investment. Is that portfolios. still going to be? Is that still going to be possible? Is that still going right. to be recommended? What are these? What are these? You know, what are these regulations going to right. do? What do yeah. you do? Yeah, we still ha- there is still isn't really consens- consensus on what cryptocurrencies are. Uh-uh. You know, are they securities? Right. right? Are they actual currencies? Are they assets? What are they? Yeah. It's a, it is, it is interesting that these people, it's like a hurricane is swirling around them and they're just (laughs) plotting on, you know, with their quill, with their quills, writing this legislation that's going to be obsolete, (laughs) you know, before the ink is even dry. Right. Uh, There's other news, John. Um, There's this interesting, I mean, I'm just going to say a bunch of things to you that you've already heard me say, but uh, an opinion piece in the Washington Post uh, making the case that we've made before, that is, if Democrats are losing the working class, it's not because of the left. Um, and, you know, I think it's it's basically a pretty good analysis. It's noting that the Democratic Party is losing support, not just among white, but among all non-college educated voters, trailing the GOP by 12 points. Um, I think a lot of times this is discussed as though, well, they're uneducated and that's why they don't support right. Democrats. And I'm happy to see that that you know, is not being pulled in here as a possibility. Instead, they're saying, look, uh, Democrats are not delivering for this base. Yeah, they haven't been in some time. They're not they're not taking on issues that are that are popular among them. And uh, Republicans do deliver even even an administration that was so like manifestly incompetent as the Trump administration. Yes. Managed to get more done than than Biden has. Yes. I think that's true. Yeah. I think that's true. Um, there was a, a piece on MSNBC this morning. Mm, to, oh, my favorite. Oh, yeah. It was just wonderful. It happens to be on here in the mm-hmm. office uh, where the commentator was referring to an op-ed that he wrote. I didn't catch which uh, outlet it was published in, mm-hmm. but he was saying, don't criticize Joe Biden. He was telling progressives, don't criticize Joe Biden. It just plays into the hands of the Republicans. Well, like, I mean, are you kidding me? Yeah, that's that's outrageous. There's also this story. Producer Ray alerted me to this story. Uh, and this is a you know, this is like a pet theme of mine and one that I would like to get into in a little bit more detail, uh, maybe later on this month. Uh, but the Reuters has a story out noting that thousands of U.S. cattle were dumped at a landfill in Kansas. What? And this is because a June heat wave killed thousands of cows and the you know the the typical method of disposing of their bodies those typical methods were overwhelmed so instead 
they took them, and, uh, considering it an emergency, oh uh, they took them to a landfill where they were just sort of flattened, flattened into the ground, not even used for anything, not even used for uh, fertilizer or animal feed, which is, I guess, wow. how cows that die of uh, heat exposure oh. are used. They're not processed for human consumption. So we are told. But, you know, I mean, during wow. the course of the pandemic, we saw the really uh, gruesome results of our hyper consolidated agricultural production mm-hmm. program where we saw tens, I think, millions of birds, uh, yes. thousands of pigs and cattle, tens of thousands, I, I think, if I remember correctly, killed simply because uh, they couldn't be processed at the optimal moment. Mm-hmm. You know, their bodies wouldn't fit through the machines. They killed because uh, people were suddenly not buying masses of of liquefied pre-mixed eggs, mm-hmm. which is where so much of this production goes to. And instead wanted to, you know, like eggs and individual dozen, you know, yeah. paper cartons. Um, so, you know, we saw that we saw the, the horrible uh, waste of life that was created simply because it became slightly less efficient to mm-hmm. process these animals. But to me, what this story highlights is, I mean, these cows were they were killed by a heat wave. Mm-hmm. Reuters says at least 2,117 uh, cattle died after humidity levels spiked, wind disappeared, and temperatures topped 100 degrees in southwestern Kansas uh, June 11th. Well, I mean, do we think this is going to happen more? Oh, yeah, probably. You can count on it. Yeah, probably. And just imagine that, you know, I mean, the, the misery that already exists in, in U.S. factory farms is is actually pretty difficult to contemplate. Um, but the misery that will be inflicted on these animals as nothing is done mm. to, uh, you know, to to make their conditions more humane until it gets to the point where too many of them are being killed by heat uh, is is just, I think, a, a real uh, indictment of of our society. Mm. Right. It is noted in this story that uh the these farmers, the people who own these cattle, are not necessarily planning to build shade because heat waves don't happen all that often. Oh my They're just going to like feed the animals more hay instead of grain, so they don't. So their internal it generates less internal heat for what? their digestive processes. Yeah, I mean, this sure, is outrageous. I, be- I bet that's a thing, but like, yeah, well, no thought to the well-being of these actual no. living creatures yeah. who we are just allowing to die by the thousands. And so I think the impact of climate change on, um, you know, animal welfare is probably worth exploring a little bit. And it's, again, one of these things that we we were all able to witness during the pandemic. Yes. And we've seen no change. Yeah, no, no change, change at all. For You're it. right. And, you know, that's not even that's not even bringing up the the massive amounts of water that it takes to raise cattle. Oh, it's so inefficient. You know, by a, a factor of X, it's it's that much more than than other animals. Mm-hmm. We really could. Wow. We could eat a lot less meat. Yes. I mean, not me personally, but right. a lot of <laughs> you, other people. You, you couldn't eat, eat any less meat. I really could. I mean, I guess I, c- I could <laughs> eat less, but it it's, you know, negligible, really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we have a, our guest is on the line, so yeah, let's take well a short him. break and... Uh, And come back. Our listeners are listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. And so we'll take that short break and come back. Stay tuned.
Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Turkey is one of the most enigmatic countries in the world. It's both Western and Eastern. A member of NATO, but effectively banned from the European Union. It borders Iran and Iraq, but it's also European. And it has long been governed, some would say ruled, by an elected strongman, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Erdogan cracked down on his domestic opponents after a coup attempt in 2016, and he hasn't let up. He doesn't have much in the way of political opposition now, but at the same time, Turkey is involved militarily in Syria. It recently bombed a tourist resort in Iraq. It's fighting the Kurdistan Workers' Party in the eastern part of the country, and it violates Greece's airspace on a daily basis. Turkey will hold national elections in June of 2023, and while it may seem that Erdogan is a shoo-in to win re-election, there is an entire generation of young Turkish voters who have known no other leader. And many of them are unhappy with the country's runaway inflation, lack of job opportunities, and constant state of conflict with its neighbors. We're joined by Elijah Manier. He is a veteran war journalist who has spent more than 35 years covering Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Libya, Sudan, and Yugoslavia, among other conflict zones. Welcome back, Elijah. Hello, and thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's begin, uh, if we could, with Turkey's foreign policy. It seems to be difficult to categorize. On the one hand, Turkey is a member of NATO, as I said. On the other hand, it's not participating in the sanctions against Russia. On one hand, it's offered itself as a mediator between Russia and Ukraine. On the other hand, it's in active conflict with many of its own neighbors. So in your view, what does Turkey want vis-a-vis foreign affairs? How does the country want to be seen? Well, this is a very interesting question. Actually, Turkey wants to play a bigger role, bigger than its size. In 2011, when the war started in Syria, Turkey took the opportunity to show itself or present itself as a leader of the Arab world and particularly the Sunni Muslims. Mm-hmm. But it has failed to prove that. It turned when the war in Syria is calming down now and Russia intervened there, it turned toward the West using the card of the immigrant and the refugees who can uh, uh, go from Syria to Europe as Turkey is the gate of Europe. So that was a kind of blackmail to attract attention and again for Turkey to have a bigger role. Basically, Turkey wants a part of Syria and has managed to take Mm -hmm. a part of Syria in the northwest. It, uh, It is in Iraq against the will of the population. It is now an effective uh, NATO country that has the veto on Finland and Sweden to be part of NATO. And it is also uh, playing a dangerous role with uh, Greece and is trying to compensate between Iran and uh, Russia uh, by uh, attending the summit in Tehran a few days ago, to make sure that it can be a channeling country also for Europe to uh, transport the Russian and Iranian gas and oil to Europe if Europe is willing to do so. Turkey has long fought the uh, Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, which it has branded a terrorist group. 
It's not unusual for the Turks to bomb PKK sites in northern Iraq or to send units across the border to attack PKK fighters. But this bombing of a tourist resort and killing a large, killing and wounding a large number of, of people is indeed unusual. Why do you think something like that happened? What did the Turks hope to gain from, from such a heavy attack? And what do you think the Iraqi response will be, if any? Uh, Turkey, I think, made a mistake by bombing the hook in the north of Iraq and killing eight people and leaving 23 wounded. However, Turkey's presence in Iraq is against the Iraqi population because the population doesn't want, the Iraqi government doesn't want Turkey in the country. However, Turkey consider many parts of Iraq as legitimate part of the Ottoman Empire mm -hmm. and consider, for example, the Mosul in the north as the 73 province of Turkey. So it has uh, 35 military bases in Iraq, and the Iraqi government is asking the Turks to leave. However, the Iraqi government is a little bit uh, in a difficult position because it needs the water that is coming through the Euphrates uh, from uh, Turkey, and it needs Turkey because it's a neighboring country, it's a powerful country, and can create a lot of havoc. So already Turkey has closed the water on Iraq and reduced the quantity of flow of water. This has created a major uh, in a domestic move of the Iraqi population. But what Turkey wants is to keep its dominance in, in Iraq as in Syria and to say, well, I have claim and I'm not leaving. Mm -hmm. and, these, and the claim is to fight terrorism when the Iraqi government is really capable of fighting terrorism on its own. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, Elijah, Turkey is having a very difficult time economically with inflation nearing 80 percent. There's a brain drain in the country with Turkish doctors, Turkish lawyers, engineers, teachers leaving the country for brighter futures in Germany and elsewhere. Um, we don't get a lot of uh, Turks here in the United States, but certainly in Western Europe, they do. And all of this is happening as the country approaches elections next June. As I mentioned in the introduction, there's an entire generation of voters who have known only Erdogan in their lives. Is Erdogan vulnerable, do you think, in this election? Uh, do you think that young people uh, are strong enough electorally to push him out, or is the fix in? Because so many people who would be his natural political enemies are in prison. It is true, yes, that you you had a, you have a very good point here that the new generation doesn't know Erdogan. Now, Erdogan is very busy in his um, foreign policy rather than domestic policy. So we've seen how last week they've announced thirty percent increase in the minimum wage. And, and that mm -hmm. happened just six weeks, six months after raising the basic rate of pay by 50 percent. So uh, Erdogan is rejecting the economist view that raising interest rate would curb the inflation and order the central bank to keep its benchmark borrowing rate below the level uh -huh. of inflation. And that what that happened, it led the local lira to lose 48 percent of the value against the dollar during the 12 months. So Erdogan is not listening to experts, and he, he believes that he will represent the ruling party uh, and um, think that all things, all the situation will be solved 
and by the start of next year, things will return. However, on the other hand, the opposition parties and trade union accuse him of manipulating the inflation figures because there are millions of households struggling with the food price and with the price of inflation. Yes, he's suffering a lot domestically, and that would affect him mid, uh, next year during the election, particularly if the currency continue to lose more of its value. Mm -hmm. And uh, that also depends on the import of energy. This is why he went to um, Tehran and he's receiving the oil and gas from uh, Russia, and he wants to do the same with Iran to try and lower the price uh, of uh, energy that he needs and to try and reduce the inflation in the country. But that definitely is going to affect him because the population is more interested in how to survive in the country and not the growth of the Ottoman Empire with very little money to live by the end of the month. Uh, you know, getting back to this 2016 coup attempt in Turkey, uh, we never really got the, the details of how this happened. Was it a real coup attempt? Was, was it uh, instigated by Erdogan in order to clean out the military? But either way, whatever the, the cause was, um, it allowed him to arrest and imprison or, or exile a lot of people that might have posed a political challenge for, for him. This is, what, six years ago now. Uh, what's, what, what's the relationship like, do you think, between Erdogan and the Turkish military? Are those Turkish military leaders who are left supporters of Erdogan? Or do you think that there's still a threat to his political primacy coming from the military? I think, as you rightly said, he took the opportunity to, invert a record, clean the country from the opposition. And he took the liberty to put thousands of people in jail among the military, judges, school uh, teachers, university teachers, all that mm -hmm. is only because he wanted to affirm his uh, fist around the country inside and then make sure that nobody is going to stand against him. And I think the coup, as we knew at that time, was supported by the Americans because it started from the insurrect military base yes. and won by his allies, particularly Russia at that time that almost saved his life by informing him of what's happening. But what Erdogan is doing today is wherever he goes, he takes with him the defense minister, the intelligence uh, the, uh, service director, we can see that there is a control on the military at the moment. The only people he fears now is the real opposition who's standing against him because of the difficult domestic situation in the country. Oh, very interesting. Um, Turkey also has quite an important drone industry. Uh, this is something that over the last couple of months has been new to me. It manufactures a drone called the Bayraktar 2B. I'm sorry, Bayraktar TB2 drone, which it has provided to Ukraine. Uh, the New Yorker magazine says this Bayraktar has changed the face of warfare because it carries laser-guided bombs, it's small enough to fit on the back of a flatbed truck, and it costs just a fraction of what U.S. or Israeli drones cost. So my question is, if Turkey's relationship with Russia is as important as Ankara says it is, 
is the relationship is such that the Turks seem to want to be that middleman to eventually bring peace to the Russians and the Ukrainians. Why are they selling these drones to Ukraine? Is it strictly economic? Now, there are many points in your question, which are all right. First of all, the New York, the New Yorker magazine saying that the Bayraktar had changed the face of warfare, not because it carried laser-guided bombs. It's because this new type of warfare of using drones, Russia was still behind. Ah. All this attention to develop missiles, to personic missiles, it was much more advanced than the U.S., in that field, but it let go a bit of the drones. Now it's, it's recovering. Russia is really concentrated now on the new warfare by producing drones and by buying more drones from Iran. The Bayraktar, yes, is very efficient. It, we, we saw it in the Battle of Idlib in Syria mm-hmm. in 2018. We saw it with the Emirati in Libya. And we saw it in the Ukrainian that bought this drone before the war, not during the war. But the Turks made a condition on the Ukrainian that was not announced, that they don't public what the, the footage of the Bayraktar attack, because they want to maintain a balanced relationship between Ukraine and Russia, and they don't want to look like they are part of the conflict. And this is what they have done when they announced the closure of the Bosporus and the Dardanelles, and they closed it when Russia put in all the ships and it did not, no longer needed to go in and out. So Turkey is trying to play a balanced role between Russia and Ukraine, but still it has sold the Bayraktar because it's an efficient drone, very advanced. And yes, it costs very, uh, 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 it doesn't cost a lot because the U.S. drones are extremely expensive. Yes. And anything the U.S. is selling is very expensive. If you go to the Russian with the same quality, order to the Chinese, order to the Korean, order to the Iranian, they can sell you the, the price of 10 for the price of one American drone. Oh. With the same capability. Right. You know, uh, in, in the Gulf, uh, in, in the, uh, the Persian Gulf, uh, many of those uh, countries' leaders have been worried about uh, the Turkish drone because it's a good drone and it's so cheap. They, they've been afraid that the Iranians were going to sort of borrow the Turkish design for their own drone program. And the Iranians have had a drone program for a, for a long time. Um, I think that, uh, that the New Yorker magazine is not the only outlet in the world that's noted how uh, cheaply this this Turkish drone can be built. I've mentioned, uh, Elijah, on the show a couple of times in previous weeks that relations between Greece and Turkey are not at all good at the moment. Turkish officials and politicians have been making provocative statements about the Greek islands being a part of Turkey and about the possibility of Turkey attacking Greece militarily. The head of one of the nationalist parties last week uh, showed on national television a map of Turkey that included all of the Greek islands as Turkish possessions. And then he made a crack about uh, about being able to bomb uh, uh, Athens before the Greeks could even respond to the bombing taking place. Uh, the Turkish Air Force violates Greek airspace literally every single day to the point where last week the Greek prime minister called President Biden and asked him to intervene with the Turks and ask them to stop. 
The Greeks are very, very nervous right now about the prospect of war with Turkey. What are your thoughts? Are the Turks serious, or is this just a way for the Turks to try to distract people from the country's economic problems? Well, that, that's an ongoing saga, really. Yes. The, I mean, it goes back to when recently, a few months ago, a Greek prime minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, met with, the, with the Erdogan. Yes. And to try to solve their country's uh, very old age differences. And however, uh, we see how the relationship is extremely tense. I mean, from the uh, Greek side, the Greece revoked Turkey participation last May in a NATO air drill. And then what Greece said about Turkey is very important. It says, Turkey is neither an ally nor a friend. So the disagreement is on the daily um, air force patrol and interception mission Mm -hmm. that is in the disputed area around the Greek island. We're talking here about Rhodos, Samos, and other uh, islands very close to the Turkish uh, coastline and over Cyprus, of course. Now, this long-standing sea and air boundaries dispute is intensifying from time to time. And as you rightly said, Turkey is trying only to attract the attention that it has many cards to play, like the one of uh, uh, Finland and Sweden to access NATO and using the veto, and like now saying that Europe, including uh, Turkey and the EU, are supporting the PKK. So all this relationship is pushing Greece to run to the EU and say, please uh, talk to the to the to Ankara and to the US and to say how can we solve. So all that is in the benefit of Turkey because it brings the EU countries and the US to talk to Turkey and to offer concessions mm-hmm. because today, as we uh, the word is going. The uh, West doesn't want another war, doesn't want another conflict. It's very much focused and concentrated on the war between the U.S. and Russia in Ukraine, mm-hmm. on the Ukrainian soil. So because of that and because of the inflation worldwide, because of the lack of energy, uh, uh, gas and oil, and because what's happening, that the sanctions are turning against the European in the main place, so this is why Turkey can play a role and take advantage and just hassle the uh, has, hassle Greece from time to time, and that always in the benefit of Ankara because it brings more to attention how important is the role of Turkey mm-hmm. in that very uh, hectic area. Now it is called the European continent, where I am, unfortunately with this period of time that is very critical. And Turkey has a role, and it's playing a role, and it needs to be recognized. This is what Turkey is looking for. Elijah, finally, you are in Brussels. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the gas situation there. The Russians will soon end gas deliveries via Nord Stream 1. The European Commission is demanding a 15% across-the-board cut in gas consumption in the EU, and prices are skyrocketing. How do you expect Europeans to respond to all of this? And what do you think winter will look like? People will go in the street. 
they already um, they already went in the street in Brussels. They done that in France, in Italy, and that uh, the the real problem is going to start with the autumn. Now, European mm -hmm. leaders told us in Brussels that we are going to stop the subsidy in September. That means the price of a liter of oil today is 2.2 euro, is going easily to reach 3 euros. And there are advisors that we need to buy a, a wooden stove to heat our homes, and we have to reduce the use of 15%. That shows how divided is going to be uh, the leadership in Europe, because countries like Greece and Spain are saying, well, we are not going to reduce uh, our use of uh, gas, and we are not going to give our gas to the rest of Europe. Mm -hmm. Hungary is saying exactly the same. I have Russian gas, and I'm not going to share it with you guys, because you have decided to shoot yourself in the foot and uh, declare sanctions on Russia when you desperately are in need of gas, and you can't go and beg the same quantity. Now, fortunately, Nord Stream 1, fortunately for Europe, it has been reduced, reducing its flow of gas to 33 million cubic meter uh, instead of 65, and Europe expects the reduction to be to, the, to zero level. That is going to really uh, uh, bring down government. It's already the British and the Italians are on the way, and there are others will follow certainly because people are not going to accept this increase of prices because of the EU policy and that, that particularly the responsibility of uh, Ursula von der Leyen, who is pushing the European to follow the US policy that is detrimental to Europe and it's completely counterproductive to the European population's interest. What's happening mm -hmm. today in Europe is really against the interests of the Europeans where Europe, for the second time now, after the Second World War, uh, find itself in a position that is watching a conflict that is happening on its territory, and the decision is for the Americans is, and the Russian, and is not a decision for the Europeans. So the Europeans missed a real role to play a role of diplomacy between Ukraine and Russia, rather than standing with Ukraine, because this is what was the U.S. will that made fun of the European or wrongly estimated the consequences by saying we're going to win over the Russian, the Ukrainians are going to win, the Russian economy is going to be destroyed, we're going to bring Russia on its knees, and we, Europeans, are going on our knees. Everything that European, the Americans have told us is the, the, the counter effect is happening and we are paying the price of our own decisions. Um, we'll add, too, Michelle just uh, informed me that uh, Erdogan will visit the Russian coastal city of Sochi on August the 5th to meet with uh, Vladimir Putin. Mm -hmm. we'll, uh, we'll certainly have that covered. Elijah Manier, thank you so much for joining us. Elijah is a veteran war journalist who has spent more than 35 years covering Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Libya, Sudan, and Yugoslavia, among other conflict zones. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and we'll come right back. Stay tuned.
Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and we are talking about monkeypox mm-hmm. because day by day, in every way, there's more monkeypox in the world and in the United States in particular. Uh, we have surpassed the number of outbreaks in Spain. Uh, The Wall Street Journal this morning says the U.S. has reported more than 3,400 confirmed or suspected monkeypox cases. Uh, So we are the country with the most known infections since the onset of the global health emergency. And D.C. is the site of the biggest outbreak in the United States. So crazy, really special people here in a special place right now, John. We are joined now by Dr. Yolanda Hancock to talk about this outbreak. She is a board-certified pediatrician. She's an obesity medicine specialist. Dr. Hancock, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So, um, you know, I wanted to start, I have some specific questions for you, but I wanted to just get a general update to start. Uh, In particular, we got news yesterday that a second child in the U.S. had been diagnosed with monkeypox, actually in D.C. Uh, it's an infant. Uh, and as I understand it, monkeypox is most dangerous for babies and and young children. So this would seem to be perhaps significant. And so, you know, before we get to anything, you know, more uh, specific, w- what is happening with this U.S. outbreak that continues to grow? One of the biggest concerns in terms of the numbers is an underestimate of the number of monkeypox cases mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. We know, as you just mentioned, uh, the U.S. leads the globe in terms of monkeypox cases, and then the District of Columbia leads the country in terms of um, monkeypox cases. They're now at 100 and, I believe, 73 monkeypox wow. cases um, in D.C. There are now 72 cases in Virginia and 71 cases in Maryland, and that's just reflective of known monkeypox cases. One of the Mm -hmm. challenges is, one, our ability to test. I literally had to Google how to test for monkeypox, which, between LabCorp and Quest, how to test for it, because this was, I have not received any continuing medical education on on monkeypox as of yet, so I did it on my own. The second thing is that monkeypox is showing up similar to syphilis as the great imitator. Oh, Oh my gosh. Yeah. The classic symptoms that we have heard about, the horrible pictures that we've seen, mm-hmm. these pustules sort of all over the body, but it could be as simple as an ulcer on the tip of your penis, where you may think you have one STD, when in actuality, that is the only symptom you may manifest for monkeypox. And if we as clinicians have not been trained to recognize all of the ways in which monkeypox can show up, mm-hmm. it means we don't know to test for monkeypox in those situations. I have seen rashes that have been pretty standard to me on social media looking like monkeypox in my doctor conversation groups Mm -hmm. where people were misdiagnosed or refused to be seen because there are healthcare professionals who are refusing to have patients come into their office Mm. fear that they're going to expose other patients. And to your point about children, the challenge with little ones is that there's so many other viruses that can show up similarly like molluscum and Coxsackie mm-hmm. that can make the clinical picture confusing. Again, if we're not being trained on how to recognize it and the community isn't trained on how to recognize it among themselves, how are we going to be able to identify the cases? Mm-hmm. And we certainly have not 
you know, come through this COVID pandemic with a public health care system or health care system that is any more accessible to people, I think probably actually less uh, as people, you know, have seen some of the benefits that they had during the pandemic eroded. People have a little bit less money in their wallets and uh, maybe have gone back to work and have less time. So, yeah, I mean, the underlying all of that is simply, you know, the, all of the calculations that we go through before we actually decide we are sick enough to go to the doctor. Absolutely. I mean, to your point, one would have thought that in 2022, the public health infrastructure that this com- this country could have created as a response to COVID-19 so that we're prepared for any other outbreaks would have been rock solid. Yeah. Instead, I feel like it's even weaker than it was before. Uh, to your point, people don't have as much sick time as they did before. If you have COVID or think you might have COVID, that's at least a five-day period of being out either for yourself or being Mm -hmm. in care of your child. So folks feel compelled, one, because of that, and two, because of where we are with the economy, not to lose out on any form of income, especially when monkeypox isn't showing up as your classic um, pustule vesicle kind of rash. They may think that they simply have um, strep throat, and they take a little bit of antibiotics that they have in their medicine cabinet. Mm -hmm. Because we have seen patients show up simply with severe sore throat, and it ends up being monkeypox because the rash manifested several days to weeks later. Mm-hmm. Yep. We would have thought that we would have a better way of communicating um, this health issue within the, the country itself, better ways of testing, better ways of accessing vaccines when necessary. And I can tell you as a healthcare professional here in the DMV, I haven't seen any of that happening to support what we need to do. May I ask real quickly, uh, Dr. Hancock, if, if a person has had chicken pox, um, it, it, does that convey an immunity to monkeypox? It doesn't convey an immunity. It gives some protection, so the infection isn't going to be as severe. Uh-huh. If you either had chickenpox or were vaccinated against chickenpox, they're still going to develop monkeypox, even in the face of either having had natural immunity or vaccine-induced immunity to chickenpox, because they're they're sort of third cousins. I see. Mm. If for the older population, anyone with that circle on their on their upper arm that shows that they had that smallpox vaccine, right. they are fairly well protected. But for those of us who have not received that vaccine, we are still at risk. Yeah, generation wow. gap here between me and John. Yeah, <laughs> John, I've got the circle. The smallpox vaccine, <laughs> not me. I want to talk, Dr. Hancock, about um, actually the smallpox vaccine and uh, our our vaccine guidelines right now. But before, or in just a second, but I, I want to get through this question first, which is the fact that this outbreak is still being treated as something affecting mostly what is termed men who have sex with men. Uh, I don't know. I, I, do you think that it is going to be restricted for very long to that nebulous group of people? And I say nebulous because it includes trans women, you know, and again, like men who have sex with men also have sex with women and live with other men who don't have sex with men or people who aren't men. It just seems to me, uh, I don't know how useful that grouping is. And I, I want to get your thoughts on it. I think we have to be very careful. We did the same thing with HIV, and in the blink of an eye, it was predominantly African-American women who were HIV positive. So we have to be very careful in that language, both in the community, because if I assume that 
it's just a, the MSM population that is at risk, then if I have a bump on my arm, I'm going to assume it's something different because I'm not in that population, number one. Number two, it, influence, it influences clinical decision-making, right? Mm-hmm. If a child shows up, again, with a bump on their face, I may presume it to be molluscum instead of asking more questions about this child's exposure. We have to be very careful. And it also mitigates risk. If we assume that everyone is at risk for money, monkeypox, because we know monkeypox is not only transmitted uh, with contact with bodily fluids, it can be transmitted coming into contact with someone who was in contact with a surface. So I just worked out this morning. If someone had monkeypox on the weight machine, didn't wipe it down, and then I get on it, I'm at risk, and I'm not in the MSM group. So in order for us to be collectively uh, protective and operating in a public health preventative space, we have to use different language. We have to say it has been concentrated in these populations because of a, an outbreak. However, Everyone, including children, are at risk of developing this infection when exposed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so with that in mind, you know, what do you make of the, the vaccine guidelines that are still, I think, you know, focusing on? Uh, well, I, I think they're still focusing on people who have been exposed or are suspected to have been exposed to monkeypox. But is that going to help contain this outbreak? Well, we have started to move forward. At the end of June, the CDC activated the Emergency Operations Center for for monkeypox, and this broadened testing and eligibility for the vaccine. So now, even if you weren't in close contact, say, for instance, I went to a huge indoor event. Mm -hmm. Someone in that event was tested positive for monkeypox. At this point now, we all have access, if we were at that event, to testing and the ability to get the vaccine. Now, here's the issue. How do you access the vaccine? Right now, luckily, in the District of Columbia, there is a website for folks to go to, preventmonkeypox.dc.gov. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that website is here in Maryland. <laughs> we have not seen a collective, again, education for us in the healthcare space to know how to connect patients to these resources. There's right now one vaccine that is approved. It is only approved for adults 18 and over. So that, again, leaves our children vulnerable, even though they are at risk for monkeypox. Mm-hmm. What are we supposed to do for our little ones, especially given the fact that particularly for babies, if they're exposed, it puts them at increased risk, not simply because of fever, but in terms of complications. So we have to think through what is this collective approach in protecting adults who've been exposed so that we don't put our children at risk. Mm -hmm. I also want to ask about, you know, there are some people who have been complaining about the the lack of availability of vaccines because there's been so much emphasis on getting this monkeypox specific vaccine that's relatively new uh, and saying, you know, why aren't we using the reserves of smallpox vaccine we have uh, because they're available now? And so I I wonder if you could uh, talk to me about these criticisms and and whether they are valid, whether actually, you know, we should be... uh, anticipating this to spread farther and faster if we don't vaccinate people and saying, look, we've got this vaccine that, you know, works pretty well. It wasn't designed for monkeypox, but it works just fine. Let's get it out there. Right. So that's the ACAM 2000. We have over 200 million doses that are currently stockpiled. The challenges with it are a couple. One, it's a live infectious virus containing what we call the vaccinia virus, not smallpox. Mm -hmm. First cousin. Uh, the challenge of administration, one, most of us in the clinical space have not been trained to use the two-pronged needle approach. So what they do is they take the needle, they dip it in the live virus, and then poke your arm in the same way that John received his so that it creates a small amount of pox in your arm. 
The challenge with that is that, one, there are significant side effects, inclusive of uh, a small um, pox breakout. The other concern is that there is a true risk of myocarditis, inflammation of the heart muscle, and pericarditis, mm-hmm. inflammation of the uh, lining around the heart. The risk of that is one in 175, one in 175 adults. Oh, that's a lot. Wow. That's a, yeah. That's a huge number. Yeah. Yeah take that lightly. The second is because it's live virus, you're putting one children at risk and two immunocompromised patients at risk that may go on to develop this infection simply because we're using live virus. And in order for us to be able to tap into this resource, we have to have the provisions in place to minimize the risk of spread while we're trying to vaccinate individuals, Mm -hmm. simultaneously protecting people against the heart complications. Mm -hmm. And so what do you think, what do you, what would you like to see, uh, I think in particular local governments doing uh, to to try to get ahead of this outbreak? I certainly expect public health departments to connect with healthcare providers so that we're not leading ourselves blindly in the dark, figuring this out on our own. We should be clear in terms of what testing looks like, making sure we have the provisions to be able to test. Number two, knowing how to link our patients to getting the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Making sure from a government standpoint that we have ample supply of the vaccine. I know the government, the federal government has ordered, I believe, over 800 million doses of the vaccine. But the talk is that that's not going to happen until the end of the year. Mm. In the world is going to happen between July and December. It makes absolutely no sense. We need we need this, this, the, the vaccines right now. We need it yesterday. If we've learned nothing from COVID, what we should have learned is that prevention is worth more than a pound of, an inch of prevention is more more than a pound of cure. I mean, it is going to be pretty embarrassing and telling if we are overrun by another pandemic of a of a disease that is less infectious than COVID Seriously. and we still can't get ahead of it after two, you know, what should have been sort of two years of, of public health boot camp. Uh, yeah, we will. We'll just have to see how this plays out. That was Dr. Yolanda Hancock. Dr. Hancock, do you want to tell our listeners where they can go to find more of your work? Sure. You can find me on social media at A-S-K-D-R-Y-O-L-A on web. I am at askdryola.com. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Hancock. Uh, John, I just wanted to tell you this uh, quick story before we went to the break. It's on in NPR. They have a story about a woman in Texas who uh, experienced a catastrophe in the middle of her pregnancy. She was 18 weeks pregnant. Uh, Her water broke. It's you really the fetus does not have a chance of surviving without any amniotic fluid before it's, I think, 20, 24 weeks is when maybe you can you can make it outside the womb. Um, But because Texas had imposed a ban on abortions after six weeks, this woman was in put into a situation where she has to wait until her health is so seriously threatened by an infection oh my uh, that then her life can be con- considered at risk or wait until this fetus uh, eventually has no heartbeat, even though there is no chance of, of it surviving outside the womb, considering this happened. And it is just a it it's a it's a worthwhile story because it sort of goes through um, what is also the horrible emotional process. Mm-hmm of having to sit around and wait until you are rotting enough mm-hmm. from the inside and the pus that is coming out of you smells bad enough 
for a doctor to decide, okay, now we are going to perform this life-saving procedure. And this is something that's going to happen. She describes yeah. listening to her gynecologist on the phone outside of her door, yelling at people, trying to trying to get you know the approval that she needs to be able to perform an abortion at 18 weeks on a woman whose fetus is not going to be viable because of something that you know w- was out of her, absolutely out of her control. And it's just, it's a horrifying story. And it reminds me of one from um, Ireland from 2012 that I think women in the United States should really be bearing in mind uh, an Indian born woman in Galway uh, had the same thing happen to her at 17 weeks. Her water broke. Uh, It's too early for the fetus to survive outside the womb. Once you experience a loss of amniotic fluid like that, it's fair. The chances of, of, being able to sort of go on bed rest and be managed in a hospital and have that baby survive are infinitesimal, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in in the NPR story, someone says this is as close to zero as you get in medicine. Um, wow. But they would not perform an abortion on her. They keep checking for a, a fetal heartbeat as this poor woman lies in the hospital. Her temperature goes up. You know, she begins exhibiting signs of a systemic infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is still a heartbeat coming from the fetus inside her. And by the time that heartbeat ended, she was she was septic. She died of sepsis in a, in a hospital See, this because is... they, she had to wait for this fetus to rot inside her. It is unbelievable. And the idea that we have set ourselves up uh, yeah. for women for women to go through that, especially women who it's wanted anti-life. who wanted these children. Uh-huh. You know, can you imagine just uh-huh. sitting there thinking, well, waiting for your heart to stop beating, yeah. even though you have no chance of of living outside the womb. Sickening. It's just off. It's awful to contemplate. Truly so sorry awful. I made you contemplate it, but I think it's pretty important. It's important. We're going to take a mm-hmm. quick break here on Political Misfits and come back to some more important topics. My You're God. listening to Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. We bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are in the next 30 minutes going to be hopping all over the place. We're going to talk a little bit about Afghanistan and whether there is maybe a little bit of a light on that horizon when it comes to refunding that country's central bank. We're going to talk a little bit of uh, U.S. domestic politics. We're going to talk about the space station. Yeah. And uh, my my overwhelming nostalgia. We're going to go all over the place. And joining us for this conversation is Ted Rall. He's an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is The Stringer. He co-hosts the DMZ America podcast with Scott Stantis. Uh, thanks for joining us, Ted. Thanks for having me. Ted, I always look for news about Afghanistan when I know I'm going to talk to you. And, you know, there is almost always something to say about Afghanistan. You just, uh, you, you don't see a ton of reporting on it anymore. Um, but I want to start with what might be, uh, if it's not yet concrete good news, a start when it comes to the relationship between the United States and the Taliban governments in Afghanistan. Um, Uzbekistan is is hosting a conference on Afghanistan right now with the participation of 20 different countries and international organizations, including the United States. And Reuters just, uh, I don't remember if it was today or yesterday reporting this, but Reuters 
citing some, you know, anonymous sources in the know, says U.S. and Taliban officials have exchanged proposals for the release of some of the billions of dollars of Afghanistan's reserves that the U.S. has frozen and is withholding. The story says significant differences do remain particularly the Taliban not wanting to replace the bank's top political appointees, one of whom is under U.S. sanctions. Uh, And so the Taliban does not want to restaff its own central bank to get its own money back, is the, uh, you know, the conclusion here. The U.S., for its part, at this conference said a future recapitalization of the Afghan central bank and the Afghan financial system is possible provided that reasonable and serious steps are taken to professionalize the central bank to enhance its anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing architecture and its independence. And so how good is this news, Ted? That is my question for you. Is this actual progress or is this the U.S. just sort of taking an opportunity to look reasonable while still holding on to Afghanistan's money? Well, Michelle, like so many things, Biden, uh, it's an incremental move in the right direction. So Mm -hmm. we have to applaud any move in the right direction while uh, sort of rolling our eyes at the incrementalism of it all. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's neocolonialism, right? I mean, uh, I have news for the United States. Uh, They lost the Afghanistan war Mm -hmm. to the Taliban, and they're trying to appoint their government officials. Um, You know, I I don't see, uh, you know, the Confederacy trying to appoint uh, members of the Federal Reserve Bank. Um, I I, I don't know. The whole thing just seems very strange. Um, It's, uh, you know, it's it's and, you know, I mean, I guess it's good. I mean, I'm not going to say I guess it is a great thing Mm -hmm. that there's obviously international pressure on the United States to to do the right thing here, albeit way belatedly, Mm -hmm. uh, well into, uh, you know, after a brutal winter. And uh, as we start to uh, stare down the barrel of another brutal winter in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. uh, where there's uh, major climate disruptions and crop failures and famine, and uh, by some accounts, up to 97% of the population is in danger, imminent danger of famine, of starvation. Um, you know, so yeah, great. They're going to like maybe release some of the money in exchange for a voice in who's in the central bank there. Great. I mean, that's good. But it is neocolonialism really at its finest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you know, in that light, I want to ask what you make of these apparent mechanisms arising out of talks between the U.S., Switzerland, and, and we are just told other parties. <laughs> Don't know who they are, but fine. Uh, apparently, the U.S., Switzerland, and these other parties have been working together uh, kind of behind the scenes to create a trust fund for Afghanistan, disbursements from which would be decided with the help of an international board. And on one hand, yeah, absolutely neocolonial, sounds infantilizing, it sounds tyrannical, a group of foreign countries deciding on disbursements to another country of its own money. Um, On the other hand, you know, it, it is sort of easy to forget, well, In conversations when you are trying to be reasonable and you are talking about trying to get uh, aid and money to the Afghan people, you know, sometimes I I think you can like dance around the idea that the Taliban are bad, right? They're they're a bad government. They're a bunch of bad people. And it is appropriate to limit contact with them when the end result of that doesn't mean starving Afghan people. So, you know, I wonder, you know, what, what you make of these mechanisms that have been proposed and if they're not appropriate, you know, what, what is the way to to continue to isolate the Taliban to some useful end? 
You know, I don't think there is any useful end to isolating the Taliban. I think by far uh, the most uh, the way that the Taliban's uh, behavior is going to uh, modernize and become more reflective of the society that they're seeking to govern and more reflective of the promises that they made prior to their takeover uh, is to engage with them and to uh, treat them like adults. I mean, you know, I, I went to an Ivy League school. I was surrounded by trust fund kids. Uh, you know, tr- <laughs> Afghanistan is not a, the Taliban are not a wayward uh, you know, drug-addled uh, trust fund kid who's it just came into millions of dollars, and you know it has to be they, they have they have to have someone look over them for it. I mean, this is actually an incredibly successful, uh, incredibly important insurgent movement that mm-hmm. defeated the world's biggest superpower without ever fielding a single airplane. I mean, you know, the U.S. Mm-hmm. could actually learn a few things from the from the Taliban, really, mm-hmm. um, but. I, you know, I, look, I, I'm goal-oriented here. Uh, anything that, uh, that that will solidify or prop up the economy of Afghanistan that has completely and utterly collapsed and uh, has caused money to even stop circulating in some areas mm-hmm. is more than welcome. Anything that uh, makes someone less hungry is more than welcome. But it's really unfortunate that the West— still has these really old 19th century attitudes about this matter. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, you know, hard to hard to really position the Taliban as much worse than some of the other governments that we are pretty happy to engage with. Right. So, again, uh, incoherent application of, of principles, I would think. Yeah. I mean, you know, what was it, two weeks ago that the fist bump with uh, with just with uh, MBS? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. really? yeah, there, uh, Saudi Arabia is always the. <laughs> Is that the best example? It's always the go-to. I mean, you know, it's it's a good one. It is. Yeah. It um, works. Let's come back to the United States for a minute. I, I think John and I mentioned this when we started the show. The Washington Post today has as its top headline, Biden posed for big wins in Congress. So, I mean... I was surprised at the cheerleading, but the Post tells us after a long stretch when his legislative program stalled... President Biden and the Democrats appear ready to notch a string of victories. And uh, this seems like it would be a pretty significant about face for the president. And so I wanted to talk about what some of these victories are about to be. We have the first major prescription drug legislation in nearly 20 years. Uh, We have a bill for more than $50 billion to subsidize computer chip manufacturing and research. That one not very sexy. Don't know how much traction they're going to get with that, but cool. Um, and a bill that would enshrine protection for same-sex marriage that uh, actually got, I think, more support than the Democrats who introduced it thought it would get. And so now, since it's passed the House, they're like, all right, well, let's see if we can get this through the Senate. Um, an expert that the Post quotes says, these are meaningful victories that should have some real political payoff. And I wanted to get your thoughts, Ted, on on some of these bills and their chances. The drug price one seems to be the most significant because I guess the price Medicare would be able to negotiate with drug makers. This is a bill allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices with drug makers. Um, but it, it would then make those prices available to other insurers and group health plans. So it seems like the benefits would extend beyond 
people who are on Medicare. Um, the extension, this bill would also include the extension of COVID-era subsidies to insurance companies to keep people's premiums from rising. This will be touted as a great victory for the people when really I think it should be viewed as a great victory for insurance companies. Um, but, you know, do you think that with these three possible victories, this administration is about to turn things around? This administration's not going to turn anything around. <laughs> uh, the, uh, you know, I think, look, I, I agree with you. The prescription drug legislation is the most meaningful because it's something that has had bipartisan support, mm -hmm. both in Congress and among the electorate uh, for a long time. And uh, it's something that pretty much everyone can agree on. It's a sort of a common sense free market solution. And nobody understands why it hasn't happened. I'm an asthmatic and uh, without hey, me insurance, too. I, I pay $220 for each inhaler, these little plastic gizmos mm -hmm. that you can get from Canada for like $18 each. And they're the same exact ones. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really dumb. And I think everyone can kind of see that it needs to change. But I don't think it's going to move the needle in any way, shape or form. When you just sort of, uh, you know, do what makes sense, you're not going to get a lot of credit from the American people. You got to do something spectacular. Mm -hmm. You have to do something that that gets their attention. Like, whoa, never thought of that. The computer chip thing is going to sound like a subsidy for Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. assuming that it passes, which mm -hmm. uh, I think is is far from certain. And, uh, you know, same thing for the, uh, uh, you know, for the, for the uh, same, uh, same sex marriages. Uh, I mean, I think that's what it has broad support that could pass the Senate. But again, that's just going to look like something that all of society pretty much agrees on, mm -hmm. including Republicans. So what? Uh, you know, it's, we don't elect presidents and congressmen and senators to do what makes sense. We That's a given. <laughs> we elect them to lead the way forward and come up with bold and exciting ideas for the future. That's what changes and can reverse a, uh, you know, a midterm election that looks really bad. Mm -hmm. You know, these these ideas don't qualify. No. And I mean, you know, where President Biden probably could stand up and try to do something transformational and uh, and make a big splash would be on climate. And yeah. instead, it's it, it, the president's communications on climate have really become kind of embarrassing. You know, we've had the string of uh, of uh, finger wagging at oil companies. And now we have him saying, you know, we're climate's code red, but it's not an emergency. It's just he keeps it. He keeps kicking the can and, down and the road. Keep saying, hearing the 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 that a change is coming, that these executive orders are imminent and it's been weeks and we haven't seen or heard anything at all. Yeah. And it almost, I feel like it's, it's worse than doing nothing to keep mm -hmm. predicting that you're going to do something and then ultimately have whatever it is he, he does do. I mean, Hey, maybe it'll be, maybe yeah. it'll be big and transformational. That would be great. Seems unlikely. And so it's, I think it's almost in terms of a messaging perspective, worse mm -hmm. to, to be, you know, <laughs> to like yes. call your home run and then, yes. and then, you know, maybe, maybe get a single. Well, he's not the one who's going, you know, he's turned 80 in November. He's not the one who's going to have to watch the Maryland Outer Banks sink into the Atlantic Ocean mm -hmm. in a couple of years. You know, I mean, I, I hate to be a cynic about it, but I just don't get any sense of urgency here. I mean, like just because someone's elderly doesn't mean that they don't care about climate change or their yeah. future or or about the future of the planet or about their about children and grandchildren. Mm -hmm. But it, but I, I just don't get the sense that this 
uh, administration really is any different from many of its predecessors. And, you know, one of the great tragedies is really uh, of Al Gore's loss in 2000 mm -hmm. is that he was the only guy who really took climate seriously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. The other thing that's true here is that the Senate parliamentarian still has to rule on whether Democrats can use the reconciliation process to pass the health care measures. And, you know, stories I saw this morning on it said, you know, she has she has decided it's it was allowable in the, you know, the, like the the. Uh, subsidies to insurance companies were allowable in the affordable or not the Affordable Care Act, but the um, American Rescue Plan, you know, Biden's big piece of covid legislation. So they're banking on her. They're assuming that they're still going to be allowable this time around. But again, there's just still this uh, this like not really real barrier. The Democrats still have to uh, have to get past in the form of this parliamentarian who doesn't have any formal power. Right. But they have to obey no matter what. You know, the parliamentarian stuff is so ridiculous. It's like, yes. you know, don't ever put your all of your hopes in, you know, into the into one basket of someone that of one person that you don't control and you don't even really understand. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's just not smart politics. Yeah. I mean, I am looking right now at this uh, Washington Post front page. The Post is putting all its eggs in this in this basket predicting these big wins. It's got a picture of uh, Biden, Biden and his uh, covid isolation. Uh, under a big sign that says chips for America. And like, you know, we've talked a lot on this show about how invest investment in American industry like would be good, would be good for the economy. Like could, we could actually do some great things. It's just that when you when you start to, you know, when you look under the hood of a lot of this legislation, you know, it does turn out to be, uh, as you said, Ted, just subsidies for Silicon Valley, subsidies for insurance companies, mm -hmm. you know, big subsidies for these industries that have uh, got or have these entities that have gotten us where we are already. And so, you know, even the stuff that's billed as transformational uh, ends up just feeling like more of the same much of the time. Yeah, more of the same. And also kind of uh, maybe uh, maybe a lot too late. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. the, the great microchip race, I think, has kind of been was kind of lost a lot a lot of years ago. Yeah. And it's I don't know if it, you know, there's anything that even 50 billion dollars in U.S. Uh, taxpayer funded uh, subsidies can do to, you know, really change the outcome. You know, 20 years ago, that might have been different. Yeah. I mean, actually, this reminds me of a report from earlier this week that China is manufacturing a type of chip that the U.S., I think, had wa wanted to prevent them from being able to manufacture a s seven nanometer. Don't make me pretend I know about chip types. Uh, but, it, you know, it's it's presented as a as a pretty big deal. Right. And so, yeah, it seems like it, it, it's going to be a lot of catch up now. And uh, and we don't like playing catch up. We like to we like to stay ahead and then uh, arrange the arrange the road behind us and fill it with roadblocks and obstacles. <laughs> That's, our that way. Right. That's our way. Um, I also want to talk, I, you know, every day I feel like we have talked, uh, we have settled the issue or, or adequately covered the issue of Nancy Pelosi's potential trip to Taiwan. <laughs> but every day there's some new angle on this extremely messy a uh, subtropical holiday. Uh, so today you have CNN getting into the fracas saying, <laughs> oh, this is a CNN politics article, guys, so prepare yourselves. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi is not easily intimidated, and she has a <laughs> long history of taking on China. Like, all oh, right. please. Sure. OK, whatever. Pelosi versus China. Um, the story references Joe Biden, of course, saying the military thinks this trip is not a great idea. Here is how she responded to that, which... Uh, 
I must have missed this, right? Unless she is just getting around to responding to it yesterday. She said, I think what the president was saying is that maybe the military was afraid of my plane getting shot down or something like that. I don't know exactly. <sighs> but like, good one, Nancy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, good recovery. Fun, funny joke, joking about the, uh, you know, another major power. Yeah. yeah, but like, the consequences w would be pretty bad, I feel like. I just feel like it's it's dumb and also uh, really cavalier about a situation that I think, you know, they want us to take seriously. And so, you know, we spoke on the show yesterday about how what China has said about this potential trip is really being blown out of proportion, right? Like China's immediate response was to say something along the lines of there will be consequences if the U.S. continues down the wrong path. With, you know, with reference to this trip, which is not the same as saying if we see Pelosi on our block, it's on or, you know, we're going to shoot down her plane. Um, but this is turning into a domestic political battle, right, with the CNN saying the U.S. is going to look like it's caving to China if Pelosi doesn't go. Hawks are saying uh, Beijing shouldn't have a say in who she visits anyway. I would like to say among those hawks is uh, Ro Khanna. So got to redefine who uh, or like crazy. Bear, bear in mind how broadly you can apply that category these days. And so, you know, I, I want to ask what you think is happening here politically, Ted, right? Do you, do you think Nancy Pelosi is orchestrating this so she can look like her party is standing up to China, even though, again, I don't think China has made any kind of uh, warnings of a, a specific response to this visit. Or is this being pushed out of control by Republicans, right? Is, is this accidental? And if it's not, what is the purpose here? Well, first of all, it's important to remember that thousands, maybe tens of thousands of Americans fly from the United States to Taiwan every single day. Uh, so <laughs> Taipei is a major airport. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there, there's a lot, you know, there, this is, and not all of those people arrive safely, uh, you know, as long as there's no pilot error. So, uh, you know, I, it's ridiculous to, to, uh, you know, make this assertion or even joke about the idea that, that China would, you know, target the speaker of the house. Yeah. Um, you know, what she, ha what she's after here, I suspect, is sort of a cheap congressional junket that's meant to that's sort of uh, meant to make the position the Democrats as foreign policy hawks. It's an opportunity to you know sort of look like they're walking tall without taking any risks. And you know the only people who are uh, really giving the United States a hard time about Taiwan is the United States. I mean, you know, the United States, Nancy Pelosi came close when she said, uh, you know, uh, we've never said that we want them to be independent, mm -hmm. but that would be up to Taiwan. Well, would it, would it really? Because, uh, the, you know, I mean, Taiwan, I, a lot of people on Taiwan, uh, particularly uh, supporters of the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, uh, they would, that's about half the country, roughly, mm -hmm. would support independence. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, the, the, I think the fact is that they know, even they know the United States would not have their back. Uh, for such, and I don't even mean militarily, mm -hmm. but I mean like at the UN, for example, to say, "Hey, yeah, we support. You know, we'll 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 uh, you know 
turn over a townhouse in DC to Taiwan for a con- for an embassy, mm-hmm. uh, we'll let, we'll you know we want we'll recommend that the UN give them a seat. Um, you know, the US does not support Taiwanese independence. Taiwan is de facto independent. It's a ridiculous state of affairs, mm-hmm. and the only people the United States has to blame for this ridiculous state of affairs is themselves. They've they this two the two China policy is kind of an absurdity, mm-hmm. and, and and they're the ones promoting it. Yeah, and they're the ones, I think, really escalating this tension. I mean, you know, they're the ones who are constantly saying, oh, China's about to invade, we have to be prepared, you know, but again, as you say, offering offering no uh, no concrete support for Taiwanese independence or, uh, you know, the promise of military support mm-hmm. should some kind of uh, battle arise. I think also we all know how that would go. Like, there's no, you know— there's, Taiwan has no Taiwan has no chance, right? I think it would be, you know, it's a, it's a volatile, mountainous um, island, so tough tough to actually invade. You know, great yeah. for guerrilla warfare, but like nobody wants that. Right. And so, yeah, it is just it it, it is. I think a it's it's a mess that the United States keeps making for itself. And, uh, you know, a, a useful way, I guess, to paint China as a bad guy. Hard to see what the end game is, really. I mean, what happens if they if they do provoke China into some kind of um, military conflict with Taiwan? I, I don't know who wins in that. You know, at the same time, though, and we've said this a number of times, mm-hmm. I think it bears repeating the the Chinese do not have a history of launching offensive military attacks mm-hmm. on anybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, God knows they've had, what, 70-something, almost almost 80 years that they could have attacked Taiwan, and they haven't. Mm-hmm. I mean, they do want it back, sure, right? Sure, sure. I'm sure they would like yeah. to do sort of a long, slow, economic kind of re- reabsorption. You know, and they got back coercion. Hong Kong, and they yeah. got back Macau, yeah. and they know that someday there's going to be a reunification between mainland China and Taiwan. And I think they're not willing to use you know, military force to push the issue. Mm-hmm. It's just not in their history. Yeah, I, that is not the impression that I get. I agree with that, John. I mean, that's totally true. There was that uh, sort of a punitive border raid right. in 1980, right, yep. in Vietnam. 79 or 80, sort of that's right, in Vietnam. Right, uh-huh. to, to, punish, to punish Vietnam for its involvement in, camp, in, uh, in Cambodia. Uh, by the way, thank God Vietnam did that. Uh, it was a good thing. Um, but yeah, and there, and people will talk about Tibet, but Tibet was always a vassal state of China, even if nobody yeah. likes to admit that mm, that's uh, true. it was never a fully independent country. Uh, and so, yeah, and it's, it's not in China's character. I, I agree. I mean, the, the, they know they can get it, they can get it back and, uh, the, you know, they're going to play the long game. I also think that if Taiwan decided to declare independence and they were serious about it, I don't think China would go to war over it. Mm-mm. I think you're right. I think what they would do is condemn it and go to the United Nations and, you know, do whatever diplomatically it was that they could do. But I, I agree. It's- I mean, Taiwan calls itself independent. Taiwanese people on yeah, Taiwan call themselves embassies. independent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have independent relationships. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's not, yeah. Right. There's not really any more for them to do. Yeah, right. They have, like, coordination councils and yeah. things mm-hmm. that are basically embassies in everything but their name. Yes. Yeah. In fact, don't they have, like, a 
trade center here or something. They, yeah, they've it's got, got it. I mean, they've got name. To, go to it's it's a consulate in all in yeah. in, in all, all but name. You yes. know, yeah, all, yes. all of this. You go get your passport stamps. You go whatever. I've right. been personally been been through it many times. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it is. It, it is just uh, purely cosmetic. Yes, the the non independence, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so, yeah, there's not really much left for them to do. Uh, it, it's just, you know, how, how how are they going to be allowed to uh, interact with China, right? How are they going to choose to do it? How's China yeah. going to choose to interact with them? And it's my understanding, too, that there's quite a healthy trade relationship between the two. Yeah, Isn't that right? Before, yeah. Very much they so. They with each other. People go back and forth. People travel. People go to universities. You know, people travel. Oh, like, it's, right. you know, it's not that there's not. There's, of course, friction. And, sure. and Taiwan is very resentful of China, like, blocking their involvement in different multilateral organizations. That, I think, is sometimes the bi- the biggest bone of contention. Because mm-hmm. everything else, like, kind of kind of seems to hum along most of the time. Um, Ted, before we let you go, I did want to ask you about Russia leaving the ISS. This makes me very sad. Um, I, I guess the head of Roscosmos, Russia's, Russia's space agency, yesterday said that Russia would exit the project after 2024, although he also said Russia was going to fulfill its obligations to its erstwhile space partners before it fully leaves the uh, the project. And so those commitments— presumably would include these agreements that were struck just earlier this month between NASA and Roscosmos to keep giving each other's astronauts rides to and from the the space station. And the departure is is maybe made a little bit less dramatic when you consider that the ISS was originally intended to be decommissioned sometime around 2024, but NASA had shifted its official retirement to 2030. But I don't know. To me, this seems like a bad sign, right? The the International Space Station seemed like one of the rare areas of genuine and high stakes collaboration and interaction. And if I'm not being too, you know, uh, Pollyanna, right, a, a place where we're like humans, I, I, humans versus space, although I don't want it to be, you know, a, a conflict, but it's uh, humans and and facing the cosmos together, right? Rather than like Russians versus Americans, Chinese versus Americans. And I feel like it's it's sad to see that ending and dangerous to eliminate one form of of neutral collaboration. And so I, I wonder if you think this is actually a big deal or if I'm just being kind of nostalgic. I don't think it's politically a big deal, but I think, yeah, I think culturally I agree with you, Michelle. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a Trekkie. I'm, I'm in Moscow right now. And, uh, you know, I'm like, I can get along with Russian people. You know, I mean, I'm American. I mean, I don't understand why it's, uh, you know, why this, the politics have gotten to this point. And, you know, I, I suspect that uh, this is, you know, more like Russia reacting to America than the other way around in this case. Um, It's, you know, it is unfortunate. I would not care if they said, if they said, well, you know, we have another, we're going to replace the ISS with something else and it's going to have a similar arrangement and that's going to be cool. But the fact that it's sort of just ending and there's no future of of cooperation that sets politics aside, I agree with you. I mean, it's, 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 it's very sad. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like it it just seems like now the world becomes more mm-hmm. more atomized, more disconnected and I don't think that that really bodes well for for understanding. 
Ted, how's Moscow? Uh, you know, it doesn't exactly look like a country that it's on its knees economically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the, tra- What's it? <laughs> the traffic is terrible. Um, you know, the, there's mm-hmm. lots of people everywhere, mm-hmm. uh, lots of people in restaurants, lots of stores. I mean, uh, there's fewer empty storefronts here than there are in New York mm-hmm. um, due, due to COVID. Uh, you know, so I just got here. I've only been here half a day and I'm still jet lagged, but I'm looking forward to uh, venturing out tomorrow more. But so far, so good. I had a really fun dinner and, uh, you know, like great interaction with the waiter and oh, uh, man. looking forward eat, to a lot more tomorrow. You're going to eat so many good pickles. Uh, <laughs> the, pickles, the, pickles go to a, the honey pickles are so good. Go to a supermarket and marvel at an entire aisle of pickled products. Wow. That was uh, that was. I will cool. do that tomorrow. Ted, have you are, are you practicing not smiling at people when you pass them on the street? Because you got to stop doing that too. Uh, oh really? Yeah, that's a New York. <laughs> no, that's a New York yeah. thing. That's how we're hardwired. <laughs> You don't have to, but people might think you're stupid. It's not really done. People will be very nice to you. People will be very kind and, and you know, helpful and whatever, but not smiling. So. Oh, well, that's just like New York. Yeah, so there, you'll be right at home. All right, well, I'll be interested in, in hearing how the rest of the trip goes, Ted. In the meantime, thank you for joining us. That was Ted Rawl. He's a cartoonist. He's an author. He's a columnist. He writes books. He's got a podcast. Where should they go to find all of your work, Ted? Best place is just go to my website, rawl.com, R-A-L-L. So simple and easy. It's, every, it's like hyphen, backslash, whatever. <laughs> God bless you, Ted. All right. Take care. Enjoy your trip. We'll talk to you again very soon, I'm sure. In the meantime, we're going to take a little break here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C., and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Donald Trump returned to Washington today for the first time since Joe Biden's inauguration on January 20th, 2021. He's in town for meetings with officials at the America First Policy Institute. It's a populist conservative think tank referred to in Washington as the Trump White House in waiting. Its strategists include Trump confidants, like Larry Kudlow, he was Trump's top economic advisor, Brooke Rollins, the domestic foreign policy advisor, I'm sorry, domestic policy advisor, uh, Robert O'Brien, Trump's national security advisor, political advisor Kellyanne Conway, and Ivanka Trump. The former president's supporters say that it's an opportunity for him to give a visionary policy speech to put the past behind him and to let bygones be bygones. Those actually were the words of former House Speaker Newt Gingrich. He's going to be there today. But is that even possible? Can Trump change his focus from his own woe is me narrative to how he would actually govern if he wins another term? We're going to talk about that with Eugene Craig. He's a Republican strategist, grassroots activist, and former vice chair of the Maryland Republican Party. Eugene, it's always so good to have you. Welcome back. Did we lose him? Oh, we may have lost. I have to Eugene. get Eugene Craig back. Oh, Eugene, are you muted? <laughs> oh, I have so many questions too. We'll try and we're going to try him again. Mm-hmm. 
Anyway, uh, I, I didn't realize until I read in Politico yesterday that this was Donald Trump's first trip back. I, it's, mm-hmm. It stands to reason. You know, you, you see him in Florida, you see him in Bedminster, you see him in New York, and you never see him here. No. Um, in fact, the Trump International Hotel at what used to be the old post office is no longer the Trump International Hotel. It's the Waldorf Astoria. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when when the Trump family left Washington, they really left. Yeah. And Washington really was pretty quick to try to shrug off. Yes. Uh, you know, the, it's, the city was never a particularly welcoming place for, no. for the Trumps, right? No. Um, yeah. So not really surprising. But, yeah, now he's back for his big, uh, big, cool new think tank. Yeah. This is kind of a big deal. Policy for his second term. Yeah, I can't wait. I think we do have Eugene now. Eugene, can you hear me? I can hear you perfectly. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you. I wanted to ask you first off um, about Newt Gingrich. He's calling Donald Trump's speech today at the America First Policy Institute the State of the Union 5.0. He said that this will be one of Donald Trump's most important speeches and that it will lay out exactly what the Trump presidential campaign will look like once he announces his candidacy for 2024. So first, what are your thoughts? Do you do you think that Trump is even capable of looking forward rather than looking backward? I, no, <laughs> not at all. Um, you know, I doubt he brings it up. Um, outside of context of him being a victim to the investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, but but not at all. Not at all. He, he, you know, this guy dwells on the past. This guy lives in the past. This guy is obsessed with the past. And, um, you know, you know, he's on the verge of uh, actually experiencing the same justice that a lot of other people in this country end up experiencing when they do wrong. Yeah. Um, hey, what can you tell us about this America First Policy Institute? I've been in Washington for 40 years, and I like to think that I know or at least have heard of the uh, the players in town. There are like 1,200 registered think tanks in Washington, but there are only about a half a dozen, say six or eight, that are that are real forces in policy. I never heard of this America First Policy Institute until a couple of days ago. Um, usually when we talk about Republican oriented think tanks, we, we talk about the heritage foundation, the American enterprise Institute, the Hoover center, but they tend to be more neoconservative is the America first policy Institute. Now the, the go-to think tank for, for Trump Republicans. Absolutely. The thing is, that's right. Um, it's where a lot of the former Trump officials have been parked. Um, you know, it's been helping them pay their bills, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it's going to end up being is that it's going to be uh, the uh, structural force behind Trump world over the next couple uh, years and next couple cycles. Um, I know Carson's already parked there and uh, some others. Ah. So what you, end up, what, you end up, what you will end up seeing is that um, they're going to help fill that structural gap that now is, you know, exists within Trump world. So, um, you know, look forward to seeing them literally everywhere. So this event that they're having today and tomorrow where Trump is giving the keynote um, address, do you think this is this is where the 2024 Republican platform comes from? Are they giving Donald Trump um, his his platform to run on, or is he telling them what the platform is going to be for the Republican Party? Um, look, he, he's going to be dictating it. Mm-hmm. 
point blank period. And this is just look, this 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 is just step one in their world of of developing their own infrastructure within and outside the party. Right. Where does that leave the likes of Heritage and AEI and, and some of these others? Are they just out in the cold now? They they have tons of money. They have these beautiful historic buildings that they own. They pay their fellows more than anybody else in town. But it seems like they're out in the cold now. Well, I don't think they'll ever be out in the cold fully, right? You got to keep in mind that, you know, something like two out of the three employees in the Trump administration came through Heritage mm-hmm. one way or the other. Um, you know, do I think this this new um, America First Institute is going to shake things up a little bit? Absolutely. Um, but do I think that it fully replaces the Heritage or AEI or Cato? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, their missions and goals are much more expansive than what's going on in the D.C. at any given time. Whereas, uh, um, you know, this American First Policy Institute, um, sole role is to, one, help revive Donald Trump. It's just be, it's going to be solely tingling around them. Um, and that's just something that won't be escaped. Yeah. There was a gathering of young conservatives yesterday here in Washington uh, called Turning Point USA. And they took a straw poll, which happens all the time at these different events. Uh, And that poll ended up with Donald Trump at 78 percent, Ron DeSantis at 19 percent, and everybody else had less than one percent. Within hours, Kellyanne Conway called for DeSantis to drop out of the race. (laughs) And (laughs) and Trump called Fox News on the phone to complain that they hadn't covered the story. But this was just a straw poll among college Republicans. It was meaningless. Uh, What should we take from all this? Look, in the lead up to the last couple of elections, your seat, if it was at the CPAC, right? Yes. Your nominees would have been Rand Paul and Ron Paul. Absolutely right. Polls don't matter. It might tell you where the energy is on certain things or what people are thinking on certain things. That's about it. Straw polls don't matter. And, um, you know, Team Trump grabs them at a lot, they grabs them whatever they can get, um, including, uh, you know, miscellaneous straw polls that they can then tout to the media. Last week when we had you on, uh, we were talking about some of the polls. We, we were focused, if you recall, on uh, Trump and uh, DeSantis. Um, that the DeSantis had, you know, 25%, 29%. Uh, was doing actually pretty well. Everybody else was 3% or less. In this straw poll, everybody else was less than 1%. Uh, one of the things that we saw in the Republican race in 2016 was almost on a weekly basis, there was a new media darling. It was Ben Carson for a while, and sort of it, they would sort of switch off. Right. And everybody would be excited about a certain candidate for a week and then they would drop off. It's Ted Cruz. Then it's Marco Rubio. And then it's Rand Paul. And then and in the end, it didn't matter. Donald Trump was the nominee. Um, Do you see that happening again? Or is this uh, even at this early stage, a race between Donald Trump and uh, and DeSantis? Well, I don't think Donald Trump runs. Uh huh. I think I think Trump inches up to that line, 
Mm-hmm. Special abuse the campaign finance laws the way he you know has been. Right. I don't think mm-hmm. he actually jumps into the race. Not could be wrong, but I really don't think he actually jumps into the race. Well, like like I told you last week, I I think you're right. I think you're right. I think that his ego is such that he just can't risk losing. Uh, you know, if he if he were to lose this primary to Ron DeSantis, it would be a humiliation that I think he couldn't bear. And I think that he's just going to. And right. Yeah, I think he'll declare himself king and not run. And the Republicans. Yeah. It's going to be at the whim of what the DNC deems as a new primary calendar. Right. Right. So if you're looking at a Maryland, South Carolina, Nevada, you know, throwing Georgia or somewhere else primary mm-hmm. a calendar, you know, um, what Republican wants to put themselves through that? Yeah. Be the defining layout for the Republican primary. Right. I want to raise Michigan, too, with you for a minute. Uh, there was another recent poll. That, to me, was far more telling than this college Republicans poll. This was a WDIV Detroit News poll for the state of Michigan. Came out yesterday. Shows Trump at 45 and DeSantis at 43 in Michigan. National polls taken over the past week show Trump beating DeSantis 59-30 and 56-32. It's very, very early. But I think that these numbers support your belief that he's not going to run for re-election. These numbers just aren't good enough. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I, I just say the numbers aren't good enough. I mean, look, he has a cash right now, um, and that cash will eventually start slowing up. I think one thing that we're seeing with these Senate races is that um, Trump world has bled donors dry, right? Yeah. So in a world where these Senate races probably should be having blockbuster uh, fundraising to take back the Senate, they're running behind their they're running behind their Democrats fundraising numbers. Yeah, and the other and and the thing that you know what almost every consultant can tell you that's worked with candidates this cycle is that this is probably the hardest cycle to raise digital dollars, and a big part of that is because hey, we're competing with twenty emails for Team Trump every single day. Mm-hmm. That's true. I, I want to get down into the weeds a little bit on, on a final question to you. We spoke with you about a week ago, and we were in agreement that the Republicans will likely take the House in the midterm election, and the Democrats would likely narrowly keep the Senate. The most recent polls show the Republicans even stronger in House races than they were a week ago, while the Democrats seem to be hanging on in these Senate races. Republicans over the past few cycles seem to have had the ability, though, to self-destruct in some of these Senate races. I'm thinking about uh, Delaware, Indiana, uh, uh, Nevada, uh, a couple of other different places. Uh, I wanted to ask you about Missouri. This should be a safe Republican seat, but a former governor, Eric Greitens, who has a bizarre criminal conviction, uh, is running a strong race. He had been leading in the polls until just a couple of days ago. Now he's dropped into second. But another Republican, John Wood, an investigator for the January 6th committee, said that he is considering running for the Senate as an independent. That would split the Republican vote. And that kind of thing sometimes happens in a place like Missouri. 
Uh, do you think that this would allow an opening for the Democrats in a seat like that? Or is Missouri solidly conservative enough that the Republicans don't need to worry there? I think in one situation, one situation only where uh, John Wood, you know, pulls a quarter to a third of the Republican vote. That would be a problem for the Republicans. Yeah, that bears watching. Um, I, I was fully prepared to just ignore uh, Missouri as we get closer and closer. but. Such strange things are happening there. And it seems like every Tom, Dick, and Harry in the state's running for Senate. Um, okay. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, we were very happy to have Eugene Craig, as we always are. He's always full of information. He is a Republican strategist, grassroots activist, and former vice chair of the Maryland Republican Party. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We have some final news notes to give you uh, when we get back. So stay tuned. where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we have a few last stories for you. One that just caught my eye, uh, John, apparently members of Shireen Abu Akhla's family are going to meet Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, in Washington, D.C. They are here to raise the issue of her death and the lack of, uh, I hate to say accountability, but, you know, the, the lack of accountability, the yeah. lack of consequences for Israel and Israel's armed forces, who uh, everyone has concluded yeah. were responsible Absolutely. for her death. Uh, what is at question for some people is, you know, whether one, whether it was actually deliberate, whether Shireen personally was targeted. And then two, you know. I think it's sort of how, how do you assign responsibility in a, in a larger context, yeah. right? Of course, accidents do happen in conflict, but also this conflict is mostly gen- generated by Israel and attempting to ethnically are... cleanse its territory, uh, what it claims is territory yeah. of Palestinians. And accidents are the reason why there's such a thing as manslaughter rather mm-hmm. than murder. If it was legitimately an accident, that yeah. doesn't. That doesn't necessarily mean... mean it's not still a crime. Yeah. You know, I was happy to see that they're in town, too, or that they're coming to town because they very much wanted a meeting with President Biden when he was in the West Bank and he wouldn't meet with them. Mm-hmm. He said that there was a scheduling problem. I don't know if that's true or not. I think the the real truth is that he didn't want to anger the Israelis uh, who couldn't have given him any any warmer a welcome. Yeah. When uh, when he went there before Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So I'm glad that they're in town. Yeah. No, they're here. They were going to they were going into a meeting earlier today, Good. apparently, when they were interviewed for this. And remember, she's an American citizen. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, this is where, the where least is, that her, where's that her the outrage deserves. Yeah, exactly. The very least. Hey, I wanted to tell you, uh, you know, because of climate change and, and the drought out west and we've talked about Lake Mead and how, you know, two bodies have been found in barrels and. Well, they found a third. Another body. Yo, you know I saw that headline. You know I love a body emerging from a lake. I mean, I'm very concerned about the processes that are causing these um, yes. emergences. But yeah, yeah. Go on, John. Yeah, Tell was, me about that body. Apparently it was in a barrel. It was, it was um, 
uh, it was a skeleton, mm-hmm. so it's been in there for quite some time, probably since the 70s or the 80s. And uh, witnesses just said that they took the bones out of the barrel and put them into a, a black body bag. We don't know if, you know, there was a bullet hole in the skull or we don't know anything. Mm-hmm. We don't know what was found in the barrel, jewelry, any identification. We don't know anything. Mm-hmm. But this is the third body now that's been pulled out of out of Lake Mead. See, I mean, you can't say climate change isn't giving us anything. <laughs> That's you know right. what I mean? The bodies close are, a lot of cold cases. Bodies are going to be unburied. Uh, there was a depressing headline that I did not look further into about uh, Greenland's ice. Oh, my gosh. Melting. I saw this. I looked at it and thought, I'm not going to read that one today. Can't. It's billions of gallons of water mm. melting per day mm-hmm. billions of gallons and just falling into the ocean mm. i've always Stunning. wanted to go to greenland i've never been to greenland no i'd like to I've been to iceland a few times i thought about it i looked in it it's pretty expensive to oh fly it's there, very expensive but i bet it's yeah pretty cool speaking of flying john uh you have two democratic senators writing letters to the uh, democratic secretary of transportation urging him to take action on the airline industry. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren and Alex Padilla were writing to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg and the Transportation Department uh, General Counsel to say, look, the, the, like, the airlines are treating their customers with, with absolute contempt, right? With yes. their policies, with delays, cancellations, Absolutely and high true. prices. You know, you have these stories day after day of people waiting, waiting for hours you know, waiting for hours in a plane yeah. on the runway yes. only to have the flight then be canceled. You yeah. know, you could have saved us a They'll trip to the airport. Hours. So these senators are saying that the transportation department can use its existing licensing and rulemaking authority to improve experiences for travelers and bring down exorbitant ticket prices driven in part by anti-competitive mergers. And so they are saying the transportation department should work harder to protect consumers from a wide range of rampant unfair practices and create concrete rules for refunds after seriously delayed flights. They also called on Buttigieg to impose fines on airlines for delays and cancellations that result from their own poor planning Mm -hmm. and uh, to stop dwindling competition among airlines, which I think, you know, that will actually improve people's lives. Right. I mean, I don't fly very often and I I don't even like to say it. I I haven't had bad travel experiences in the the couple of flights that I have taken. Oh, no. Yeah. The couple of flights that I've taken this year, I think I might have only taken one flight in 2022. Wow. No, I've taken a couple. Um, it's been fine, but they uh, these senators were saying that one in five flights arrived behind schedule in 2022. Airlines have canceled almost 122,000 flights this year, way more than were canceled last year. They've also been overbooking way more. I mean, it's just like you get to the airport and it is just... Uh, a couple hours long experience of, of utter contempt for you and your time yes. and your personal privacy. And so, yeah, if, uh, if they can prod him to do this, that would be great. Do you remember Braniff airlines? You may be a little bit too young. No, I do not. So Braniff went out of business in the eighties. It was, uh, it was owned by a guy named Braniff, Mr. Braniff. Mm-hmm. And, um, they, they famously overbooked a, a flight one time, uh, out of, uh, DCA national airport here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so they overbooked it by one 
and they filled every every seat on the plane. Mm-hmm. And there's this one guy, and he had a, a paid ticket, and they brought in another 737. He was the only person on it, and they flew him to his destination wow. because they said it's all about customer service. Mm-hmm. Now, in the 80s, you know, wave of mergers and bankruptcies, there's no more um, Big Apple or mm-hmm. New York Air. They had a red apple on the tail. Yeah. There's no red uh, or New TWA. York Air, Trump, TWA, Pan, Pan Am, Braniff, yeah. Eastern, Continental. They, yeah. all, they all went away. There U.S. Used to be Air. Some competition. Yeah. No. Did you know now we're prices stuck. for domestic flights have increased by almost 50% since January? I absolutely believe that. And the reason I believe that is because. Um, I was supposed to give a speech in Cleveland two years ago, and then we got hammered with uh, COVID. And so even though it was a non-refundable flight, they said, oh, we're going to refund everybody's money Mm -hmm. as a credit. So I've had this $225 credit for the last two years. I've never been to the state of Idaho. Mm -hmm. And I want to go to Idaho. So I've been looking at flights to Boise and Coeur d'Alene. And the cheapest flight is $860. Yeah. It's just prohibitive. Yeah. I can't, I can't do it. No. Did you also know uh, the, the senators are alleging that airlines have failed to issue at least $10 billion in refunds for flight cancellations through the pandemic, despite being required to do so by federal law. That just sort of also highlights just how hard it is to like, you know, increasingly, if you have some kind of problem with a, with a big company, there's nowhere to go. No. Everything's there's just nowhere like, to I go. feel like such an old person. It's all just phone mazes and, and whatever else. But Yes, yeah. absolutely true. Also, another random story here, but uh, I guess Meta, Facebook's yeah. parent company, right. is asking its oversight board whether it should continue to remove what it calls COVID misinformation or whether it should sort of relax it back to how it treats regular posts, I guess. So it's just sort of like, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's a very, it's a weird, it's, it's a, it's a, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just, they're saying, um, you know, that, uh, because vaccination rates are different in different countries and the, the process of quote, going back to normal is different in different places that like, maybe they don't need to have this blanket policy anymore, which of course caught up a lot of stuff that yeah. Shouldn't have been termed misinformation, but maybe they're going to they're going to stop clamping down on covid misinformation and just really focus on what's politically uh, inconvenient or embarrassing. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's it. Real quickly, too. I wanted to say that the the actor Tony Dow died uh, this morning. He played Wally Cleaver in Leave it to Beaver. Uh, he was a regular at these, you know, uh, classic TV conventions and stuff, but very popular actor. He became a producer and a director. Um, just the last couple of months, he's been suffering from liver cancer. Mm-hmm. Died this morning. RIP, so, yeah. buddy. Yeah, poor guy. We're going to leave it there. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> Say thanks to I all will. of our guests. John will. I'll be back at some point. <laughs> thanks to the guests. Thanks to the producers and engineers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou, who you'll hear from tomorrow, and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks for listening. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>